0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: What number
2: are we thinking
1: of?
0: Sixty nine, dudes.
1: Huh. It's nineteen sixty nine, okay? Walk across the USA. It's another year for me. Another year with nothing to do There's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do
0: Christopher Media, let's make some noise
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Stashu.
0: I'm here. We have things to talk about. Maybe we've talked about them before.
2: Hmm. We are kicking off 2020 with one and a whole series of films that were released in 1969. Up first is a film that I feel really captures the essence of the Japanese new wave, Yoshida Yoshishige's Eros Plus Massacre. The film sets up two parallel stories, one set in the late teens, early 20s of the 1900s, and the other in contemporary, for when this movie was made, 1969. The early story concerns the anarchist Asuge Kasai and the three women in his life, most pointedly Ito Noe. These are figures from history and contrasted with the fictional characters of 1969, which include Iko, Megumi, and Wada. We'll be discussing all that and more as we go along. This is one of those episodes where I think it might be good to see the movie before hearing us try to unpack what was going on. This is a movie so dense that this is actually the second time Chris and I have discussed it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Arrows Plus Massacre and what did you think?
3: The first time I went to grad school, I randomly wound up focusing on Japanese theater and film and... New, more genre stuff but wasn't really familiar with many new wave directors and one of the books that i had to get uh for a paper was the *Eros plus massacre book that i'm sure we'll talk about and because of that i saw the film and just thought what the hell is this like <laughs> i had never seen anything like it the first time i saw it i didn't know if i liked it or not but i couldn't stop thinking about it and for me that usually is a a good indicator. So I watched it again maybe a year or two later and just I just really love it. I mean it's it's not really like comfort relax film viewing, but it there's just so much. And Chris, how about yourself, sir?
0: You we had already spoken pre-podcast about whether or not I should give you a hard time. And uh I I I'm going to give you a little bit of a hard time, but not, not any more than you deserve. Let's put it that way. (laughs) So back in 2018 on my podcast, the culture cast, I was like, Hey, you know, Mike, you know, Mike and I are pretty close friends. I was like, it would be kind of fun to have Mike just program an entire month. Mike White March 2018 was the first one that we did and Mike. Just decided, I guess. I don't remember what the onus was for you deciding to do Japanese New Wave. I think it was at the time you said something to the effect of, I looked on my shelf and saw these movies and wanted to watch them. You picked Japanese New Wave. This was one of the films. I can't even, this may have been the first one that we did. So, Mike, uh, earlier, I guess it was, was it, it was around, I was about like maybe August or September of last year, you were like, hey, I want you to be on the Eros Plus Massacre podcast. And I was like, what? Why? Because we'd obviously already done a podcast together about it. Uh, But, you know, I'm a good sport and Mike has nothing but good things to say about me. Check out the last Ego Fest. But, uh, you know, I'm always game to talk about another three and a half hour Japanese film. That's impossible to find sometimes and easier to find other times that has two different versions and multiple books written about it. So I'm always game to talk about it. There's more than enough to talk about here. And then some we could probably spend more time than we're going to spend on this movie talking about it and all of the related ephemera that comes along with the film. But this was the this was the second time I'd watched it just all the way through, Uh, because honestly, there's a lot (laughs) to unpack. And by a lot, I mean, a lot, a lot.
2: And I know y'all would agree. So when we talked about this almost two years ago I remember saying that I could watch this movie probably a hundred more times and still not figure it out. And so I still am trying to figure this movie out. (laughs) Now having watched the long version a few times and watching the shorter version a few times and reading about it more. And now there is a box set of Yoshida films out there. Uh, I think it's called arrows plus anarchy. And so now These things are finally a little bit easier to find, and I still can't make heads or tails of a lot of this movie, but it is so much fun to watch. I love looking at this thing, and yeah, I think I also said two years ago that if you just threw this up on the wall and had it playing all the time, I would just be captivated by it because it just has such a its own internal logic that it's doing things, and I think as we start to talk about it and read more about it, we'll be able to pull some of those things apart but it still is very enigmatic.
0: Yeah, no, you definitely did say that. I actually, and this is something I don't do very often. I don't know about you, Sam or Mike. Uh, I don't listen to my podcasts after they come out.
2: No. Yeah, me you neither.
0: Know, nope. You know, I, I had to edit them or I did, or Mike, you edit yours, Sam. I don't know if you edit yours or if, you're, if you've gotten away from having to do that.
3: <laughs> Which, I, I Lucky you. I magically escaped, but I still can't listen back. So I actually went and
0: re-listened to the podcast we did, Mike, and uh, you have a pretty good memory, uh, as do I for remembering some of the things that you you and I have already said and you've already mentioned some of the things we talked about. But yeah, no, I think just right out of the gate before we really talk about the movie, what you said about just putting it up and having it kind of playing in the background as like just moving pictures without any – I mean the audio is – if, if you're if you're a turd and don't care about reading subtitles, I mean, the audio is unimportant, but there, it is a beautiful film to look at just at the base level.
3: Yeah, I think we should start a petition that instead of playing sports in bars, they should just
2: put this on all the televisions. Sure. I'd be for it. I'd be into that. Where I work at in the restroom, there are two TVs that are always on and they we used to be turned to ESPN. And I thought that was bad, but now they're tuned into C-SPAN, that's even worse. And I make it a point every time I go into the restroom to turn off the TVs, because I just cannot stand watching those. And yeah, if it was Plus Massacre all the time, I think it would be a much better work environment. Why are there TVs in the bathroom? Why are there
0: TVs in the bathroom? Where do you work? At Chili's?
2: (laughs) I, I work at Quicken Loans, and they... I like to have TVs all over the place. I don't know why. That's crazy.
0: Where are the are the TVs in the bathroom in the stalls or like <laughs> in I'm curious now because I'm legitimately curious. I've never been to an office building, which I am assuming you work in, that has TVs in the bathroom.
2: They are above the sinks where you, you know, wash your hands. So they're opposite of the urinals and the stalls. So oh, while yeah. you're in the stalls or at the urinal, you have C-SPAN just droning on or crazy callers from their call-in shows or the A-hole in charge um, yelling at you the whole time. And it's it's like pretty much like, I think for me, it's hurry up, do your business and get out of here because I can't stand listening to this stuff.
0: Boy, Dan Gilbert, just the kind of money to throw around. Sure. I mean, it's a good way to get people out of the bathroom by having C-SPAN on. I personally think having movies on in the background is better than sports anyways. And I don't understand. Like you go out to restaurants and stuff and they just have like the most random shit on. And it's like, you could just put like a channel that has film on and it's, I think much more engaging, even if it's not something like this, it is still much more engaging than just mindless droning of sports. And like with something like this, again, The director of Parasite last week just, like, trolling everyone during the Golden Globes. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't get over the subtitles, you fucking clowns! Like, it's stuff like that. Like, it does ring true because, like, there is an inherent quality of just film without any audio to begin with. And you
2: see that with this film. Yeah, because there are so many passages in here where not a word is spoken. And you can go for what, long stretches, 10, 15 minutes sometimes with nothing being said. It's kind of wild.
3: It's not the sort of movie where I would catch myself thinking like, okay, can we move the plot along here? Every time I watch it, I just get so absorbed in the visuals. And I notice new things every time, like the way he contrasts the student couple with the relationships going on in the 20s and how they start to kind of bleed together. I don't think I noticed that
2: as much in the past as I did this time rewatching it. Yeah. There's never a time where I'm really bored. I think it does speak a lot to the filmmaking that whenever you might possibly get bored, they're going to switch it from one time line to another. And you're right. As far as those coming together, because he makes no artifice to say, this 1920s stuff is set in the 1920s, because there are modern buildings, there's cars going by in the background, there are people who are in contemporary dress going by in the background, they're walking out a freeway, there are city buildings, so it's basically, these people are in this dress, you have to buy that they're from this time period, but towards the end, they almost feel like time travelers, and it's like, okay, this is – what was happening then is the same as what's happening now.
0: I honestly wish more films did this. Like, look, you, you, you have a lot of films in 2020, and I, I keep having to remember it's 2020 now, that are really like, oh, it's a period piece. And we really have to make everything period accurate. And if we don't, someone's going to point it out and say, well, that phone on the wall is not period accurate or that car is not period accurate.
1: This guy would have been excellent at since.
0: And with something like this, that doesn't even matter. And it's because of the story that they're telling is so interesting and engaging and enthralling that you almost don't care. And it's the director Yoshida's kind of job to give you something else to care about. And also, like you said, Mike, juxtaposing... Because a lot of this movie is about, like, where does the past and present and future kind of end and begin? Because a lot of the stuff that's happening with the students in the quote-unquote present is pretty much juxtaposed right up against what's happening in the quote-unquote past as well. So it's it's really interesting how he plays with time, but also plays with the viewer's preconceived notion of what you would believe to be how you tell a story set in a quote-unquote period setting.
3: Which I love so much. And to me, the first time I saw this, I was, you know, I was 21, 22. I I was reading all of these books for the first time about, like, literary theory and political theory. And I feel like a lot of that, it's easy to keep it in this sort of academic setting, where everything is just kind of theoretical. And it's really difficult, especially when you're that young, to apply any of it to your actual life. But this movie was something, it was one of the first movies I had seen, and I think probably one of the only ones that really does a great job with it. But it takes this idea of revolutionary politics and makes you consider how those things impact families and romantic relationships and people's personal lives in a way that didn't feel like pedantic or like he's trying to sell you some bill of goods it was just sort of like here's what these people are struggling with here's how they struggled with it at the beginning of this political movement and here's how they're still struggling with it and i just i still don't understand how his brain was able to make that happen in such an amazing way
2: And I think it's also telling us stuff about World War II because it is so conspicuously absent. You know, we're looking at the 1920s, the late 19-teens, and then we're looking at 1969, and there's no mention of what happens in between. And what happens in between in real life is this huge shift in Japan. And it's like the things that happened in the 1920s were able to open up the doors to what happened in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and now we're back here at the same place. I think having... Uh, the one feminist woman from the 1920s being able to speak to the young woman in 1969, they're sharing the same struggle 40 some years apart, but it's very similar for both of these women.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting to me that he chose to make a film that's largely driven by its two main female characters and the two kind of corresponding male protagonists who are their partners are just the biggest bunch of cry babies. Like, the <laughs> and that I love that contrast. And like, that's what he decided his focus to be. Like there's, there's nothing really heroic about any of the characters, which I think con- intentionally contrasts with more classical Japanese cinema, but he just like makes the women look so much more competent and compassionate (laughs) than their male counterparts. You almost have to feel bad.
0: That's not an unintentional choice by Yoshida, but I think it's, I think it's the right choice to make because the female characters are the focus and in them being the focus, you want them to be sympathetic as opposed to the male characters, which are just like you mentioned, just obnoxious. Like they're, they're awful. They're very well defined but in a way that I find hard to get behind.
3: They are sort of symbolic of a lot of what's wrong with revolutionary political movements is, you know, you have these super egotistical people who think they have everything figured out and are just going to impose their own selfishness on everyone else in the name of politics. And so it's like this film just works on so many levels.
2: Yeah, the Asugi Kasai, the anarchist character from the 1920s, who I think has been held up in the past as being this martyr to the cause. When we actually get to see him interact with the three women in his life, you're absolutely right. The guy's, he's not necessarily a cad, but he's a blowhard. He has all of these rules for how they can live in harmony with their uh, free love and stuff. And it basically feels like he's trying to take advantage of these women. And one of the big things is you will be his rule. You will be financially independent. <laughs> so don't look for me for money, but I'm going to look for you for money. He's basically collecting money from these women and living off of them. He's almost a pimp. you see big business? it's been going on since the beginning of time.
0: And, and let's not forget talking about, you know, Osugi Sakai and people like him. There has been a shift recently away from feeling that way towards people anyways. I was thinking about someone like Osugi Sakai. And then you think about other people that are these kind of martyrs for the cause And someone like maybe Gandhi has been treated very much the same way. And there's a lot of really unsavory stuff about Gandhi as well. And I think it's really interesting to see as early on as when this film came out, this kind of weird tonal shift from going, you know, he might have been a martyr, but he was also kind of a I don't I I don't you don't want to besmirch someone's name. But at the same time, the way he acted was sometimes very juvenile and controlling. And I would say most of the time it's juvenile. And clearly a lot of the time it was controlling.
3: There's a, definitely a touch of gaslighting or emotional abusiveness in the way that he tries to make them think that I can't meet your emotional needs because I have these grand political aims and I, I can't be faithful to you because it's beneath me, because I'm this, you know, political visionary. And it's like, it's the worst kind of bullshit. And at the end, the first time I saw it, I was like, you know what? Good for her.
2: You deserve to get stabbed by a couple different people. It's okay.
3: Yep. You earned it.
2: Yeah. It doesn't necessarily come through as great. And then one thing that I found interesting is that one of our characters – in the movie was still alive in 1969. One of Kasai's, I can't remember if it was his wife or one of his lovers, but I
3: think one of his lovers.
2: Yeah. And so she was like, Hey, you cannot portray me in this movie this way. They ended up renaming her as something else. But when the theatrical version came out, it was shortened significantly because of, removing parts of her. Um and it's interesting to listen to the commentary on these movies and you listen to David Desser, the author of Aerospace Massacre, listen to him talk about the theatrical version and I think he actually likes the theatrical version more, which you wouldn't think. You would think like, "Oh yeah, no no no, give me the full thing." But to his credit and and I tend to agree with him, it's a tighter movie, it moves a little bit faster. And the things that are missing aren't necessarily detrimental to the story.
3: It's just such a massive, complicated story that I don't I mean, I typically am the person who also always wants the longest version or prefers the longest version. But I think in this case, there's nothing wrong with having it move along a little faster, like you still are getting the same story.
2: Or stories, plural. I also think it's interesting that the longer version clocks in around three and a half hours. We've talked about this before on the show, like... Chris, you and I talked about, uh, Selene and Julie go boating. And for me, that movie just flies by, even though it's another three hour plus movie. And yesterday I sat down and I watched the Irishman, which is another three and a half hour movie. And the Irishman uses the same tricks that this movie uses, which is going back and forth in time in order to make it not just a complete boredom fest. I'm not sure yet if I like the Irishman or not, but I found it very interesting watching Errol's plus Massacre and then rewatching or rewatching Eros plus Massacre and then watching the Irishman. And I was just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. How the past affects the future versus the present. And we don't get, well, actually these days we get too many three and a half hour movies. I'm looking at you, Marvel. Uh, at least some of them fly by.
0: I will tell you, I'd rather watch Arrows Plus Massacre than The Irishman again.
3: I still haven't seen it, and I...
0: Have you seen Goodfellas?
3: Yeah, so I don't know... Have you seen Casino? Uh, Yes. Then you don't need to watch it. That was sort of how I felt about it.
0: Uh, Unless you want to go, Oh, Martin, it's so cute that you're giving everyone else a hard time about being derivative. That's so (laughs) cute. And you pat him on his little head and send him on his way. It's entirely too derivative to be considered original, or creative, and the CGI alone is... Oh, boy.
3: This is sort of my problem with recommending movies like Eros Plus Massacre to people is because it seems like so many people I know, even who consider themselves like movie fans, and on some level they just want things to be safe and comforting and predictable, which is why it seems like every person I know always goes to see the new Tarantino movie, even though they're basically always the same or always goes to their couch to watch the new 9 million hour Scorsese movie on Netflix. But something like this is a much better film in every possible imaginable way that you could, that you could kind of classify that. But It's not an easy film to watch because it's like even every review of it has a line in there like it would be helpful to familiarize yourself with the history or the background. And there's always this sense of you need to bring something to the table when you're watching this movie, which is why I think it's so great. But none of those other three and a half hour movies recently have any of that at all.
0: I think if I suggested this to someone... And they, well, first off, I don't honestly think I could in good conscience suggest this to most people I know. Pretty much anyone I would suggest this to, I've been on a podcast with before. <laughs> so, I mean, this is not, um, you know, Mike, we've talked about this before. This is not beginner level cinema. No. This is like, I mean, I'm not trying to say we're so fucking smart. We're nerds. It's like the guy who pulls his D&D sheets out and sits and does number crunching on a weekend because he finds it fun. This is the kind of movie where we went out of our way to watch it. You're not going to go out of your way to watch it. It was released on Arrow, which means it's not being released by one of the big, you know, you know, it's not being I mean, it's a bigger releasing studio for, you know, post release DVDs, but. I mean, this is. I, I know two people I would suggest this to, and one of them are. I've already suggested it to, and she will watch it eventually, I'm sure. But yeah, I don't know if I could suggest this movie to someone. I wouldn't, frankly, because they're just going to go. I'm never going to watch anything you suggest ever again.
2: <laughs> it really shows that this was made for a Japanese audience because we here, especially in 2020. I don't think very many of us remember that there was a huge, horrific uh, earthquake in Japan in 1923. I mean, we remember Fukushima, but an earthquake from 1923, it's hard enough for me to remember that there was an earthquake in San Francisco in, what, 1906. So I was not aware of that. And when they start flashing these pictures, these slides up onto our contemporary heroine's body, I'm like, what is this? And then I have to read about it, and go, oh, okay, the filmmaker character is making a documentary about the earthquake, but then I don't think it's any mistake that those Pictures That are flashing up on her Of all the destruction That that also looks very similar to What the world was like after the war That it, you could mistake that For horrific scenes after The atomic bombings if you wanted to go that far We don't have that history We don't necessarily come to the table With that knowledge So like you said, we're nerds We're going to read about this stuff And be like, oh, okay Now this, these things start to fall into place But it takes a lot to figure some of these things out
0: well, I mean, you're talking about, you know, us as a quote unquote American audience not having any frame of reference for things that happened in Japan. I mean, look at something like Watchmen that sh- that premiered last year. People didn't even know about the, the thing that happened in Tulsa. And that was in our own country, for fuck's sake. Like, yeah, if the expectation is showing this to an American audience, like you mentioned, Mike, they're going to be completely out of their depth because all anyone knows about Japan in regards to cinema is, uh maybe they know about uh anime outside of Akira. They know about Godzilla. I don't know. Maybe the influences anime had on something like The Matrix, but I think American filmgoers as like a general public are very uneducated about Japan as a country, let alone as Japanese cinema. And like you mentioned, Hiroshima, Fukushima, Nagasaki, and that's kind of it, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. That's
0: terrible to say, but I mean, it is. I'm that's not why sure how I, much. That's
3: why I had that I'm moment of <laughs> silence.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, if we had, if we had a, a Japanese nationalist on this podcast, I'm not sure how much they know about American history. To be fair, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's infinitely nothing wrong with that. But yeah, there is a lot of like. um It's like the race has already started, and you're doing a little bit of catch up just watching this movie to begin with.
2: Yeah, I mean if they made a movie about Tammany Hall or something, I'd be like, Okay, I kinda remember this stuff, but I'm not a hundred percent I mean, talking about Scorsese again, Gangs of New York, I was like, Well, how much of this is real, how much of this is fictionalized? I recognize some of these characters from history, but I'm not exactly sure how much of this is holding to real things, you know. And then if you had taken those characters and suddenly allowed them to walk the streets of modern New York, then you're getting more into Arrows Plus Massacre territory.
0: I mean, this film kind of condemns the education system in Japan a little bit by essentially saying, well, the, the kid, these students are not being supported by the, the government and the people that are teaching them aren't supporting them. And they're kind of going off and creating their own identities and their own ideas. And as someone who has been especially, you know, personally around others, very vocal about the education system in this country, it is a failing that we don't know more about the things that happen in our own country that have happened, let alone in other countries. And again, other countries is one thing, but in our own country, it's kind of problematic and, and suspect. I mean, I'm not sure if you showed this to someone who was my age, who was born and raised in Japan, if they would know about that earthquake outside of maybe it happened
3: sure but i think that that at least for me is part of the joy of what we might think of as you know more advanced level cinema like compared to the you know beginners type stuff that we were talking about earlier is you go into it always learning so much about something, whether that's learning about filmmaking itself or learning about a particular historical event or political idea. And I think that's why, even though this movie is so long, I don't get tired of rewatching it because it's just
2: like this whole new world to discover. And also the filmmaking techniques are amazing. I mean, think about that. We can call it maybe a trial scene where it is the three people, the man, woman, and child, one of the the man being uh, Kasai, Kasai, and the way that it is shot with them and the white kimonos versus the black kimonos, the still images that they use. I mean, Yoshida is not afraid to try different techniques throughout this movie and really embracing that whole aesthetic of Japanese new wave cinema. And it's just like, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do it here. And it doesn't feel like he's just doing it for camera tricks. It's like he's trying to tell us something with some of these images. And I really appreciate that. I think the him with his use of framing too is very interesting. He has a lot of people that are very low in the frame and a lot of space above them. So it almost feels like the world is coming down and crashing in on them. So I think he's very smart when it comes to his choices of how he is putting this movie together.
0: Yeah, he breaks a lot of quote unquote conventional rules of filmmaking. And in a good way, I mean, again, that's what I expected the first time I watched this film. And now having seen this, this film again, I mean, you notice it more and it's breaking the film rules in a way that works for this film. I mean, there's a lot of other films that you could watch that it's just like, Oh dear God, stop. Like, just, just do the conventional thing. Don't, you don't have to do this. Like you don't have to break the rules. Like no one's asking you to, but here it works. And I think for me, it works. And like you mentioned, Mike, the framing allows him to do some interesting kind of things with how the characters are set up in a scene that maybe another director at the time who wasn't part of the movement would have just looked at him and been like, "Eh, this is shit. This is stupid. Like, I don't even I don't get it. Like, just put the camera in one spot. Don't fuck around. And what's up with this rugby game? Come on. Ah, That's my favorite part of the entire movie. I love it. It's So good
3: that's one of the great things about this film is I like a lot of, you know, on a, a past episode, I forget what we were talking about, but Mike and I were talking about some, Oh, the, the Polanski Venus and furs adaptation. Uh, I was talking about how it's a movie that feels very much like an intellectual exercise and thus will not appeal to a lot of people. And I would say in general, I'm someone who likes that kind of cinema or finds it engaging, but with a grain of salt, sort of, where it's kind of like, okay, this is interesting, but do you need to make an entire movie just to, like you were saying, just to break a rule or just to experiment with a technique? But what's so great, I think, about so many of these sort of major Japanese new wave titles, and especially this film, is... He tells a really compelling, affecting story while also experimenting, and he uses the experimentation not just for its own sake, but as a different way or a better way to tell the story. And and that is what I think is so mind-blowing about this.
0: I agree. I mean, you've you've got a lot of directors during the Japanese New Wave movement who seem to be just breaking rules for breaking rules sake and not really having anything interesting to say about it. One film in particular that I wasn't uh, too hot on when we talked about it back then was Funeral Parade of Roses, which I felt, I felt was a little excessive. I mean, again, this is two, this is two years ago, mind you. I mean, I have not, I haven't gone and revisited it because Mike decided not to pick that as the one we talked about again. He chose (laughs) this, but I felt it to be excessive then. And going back and looking at some of my notes, on it. Um, that, that kind of rings true, but this doesn't feel aerospace massacre doesn't feel excessive.
3: No, not at all, which is weird because I think when you describe it to someone or you attempt to describe it, it sounds like it's, you know, intellectual masturbation or trying to be artsy for the sake of being different. But like, it's none of those things. It, the the emotional scenes even the ones with no dialogue like that's what i wind up thinking about long after the film is over it's not like oh look at how he did this great kind of cutaway shot like it's it's just the emotions are all there which i think they're not I, i have to agree with you like i really like funeral parade of roses but it's a film that wants to be experimental just for the sake of it unlike this
0: As much as I do like this film, as much as I appreciate this film, it does kind of verge on intellectual masturbation, but there's nothing wrong with that. In and of itself, that sounds like a derogatory term, but like, I don't, I mean, in the case of this film, you could be like, well, it's derogatory, but I mean, it is kind of intellectual masturbation, but so what? Films are allowed to do that as long as it's not intellectual masturbation, but at the same time talking down to the audience.
3: That is what gets on my nerves because I think those films automatically take more difficult subject matter and then alienate a large group of people who maybe would be interested in the film by saying, okay, you're stupid. You can't understand this. Whereas this film, it's like it has all of these references. I mean, the title references Marcuse's Eros and Civilization, which unless you read up on marxism or philosophy you would have no idea but it, it doesn't matter it links back to those references if you understand them and you get the connection it's great but even if you wouldn't happen to get that it doesn't make the film any less rich or layered and that's what i think is so great about yoshida is he he's not trying to lord over you that he's this auteur which i love godard But I think a lot of the time, that's what Godard is trying to do. And it's kind of mean-spirited.
2: It's pushing for discussion, pushing for change, but it's not as in your face is say like one plus one sympathy for the devil or something. And it, I just don't feel like Yoshida is there saying, look at me. I'm super clever. It's more like I'm telling you a story. And I really think that th- what happened in the past is being echoed here right now. So that's why I'm going to have these characters side by side and tell these stories side by side and actually have them interact. I love the whole idea of, when a character from the past comes to Tokyo of the present, that our main female protagonist in '69 is there to interview her and ask her questions and try to figure out what happened in the past. I love that. That scene is great. I love, too, that this is, in my opinion anyway, it feels very much like a feminist statement that there is a lot of stuff talking about gender politics in here that. The first time we see our main female protagonist, she's having sex with this guy and they get interrupted. And so she ends up going into the shower to have her orgasm. And that scene in the shower, it almost feels like she's trying to conjure the past that all of these things from the past seem like they could be her fantasy or that she is manifesting them somehow, because it feels like that, that, cutting back and forth really starts in that shower scene and I wonder how much of this things that are happening in 20s up to 23 if that is in her mind or if that is if we're supposed to think that that's real or if we're supposed to think that that is our main character's fantasy
3: I don't know if I ever thought about it that way as it being her fantasy but I think that that connection is so strong like between the women who are pretty much dealing with the same set of problems. I mean, I I'm sure someone on the internet's going to want to come set my house on fire if I say this out loud, but like I'm not somebody who's ever really considered myself a feminist because I grew up sort of around the tail end of second wave feminism, which is, you know, super anti porn, very sex negative. And so just when I started to read more about, you know, history and politics and theory, I was never really interested in any kind of feminist theory. And so seeing this was, I think, an important moment for me, because it takes these very authentic kind of feminist problems of, okay, we're trying to be we're trying to live in the world and adhere to these political ideals about, you know, having personal freedom and not being stuck in these kind of traditional marriages, like especially, I mean, Japanese society being so much more traditional even than ours, especially still in the sixties. And so it's like, you have these women who are trying to make films or trying to run this magazine while at the same time grappling with these issues of, okay, but how do we live in marriages and how do we have spouses and these like controlling lovers and have those politics at the same time? It's like he presents it as being so complicated, but in such a sympathetic way that was something that I guess I hadn't really thought about a lot before I saw this. And I love the way he has the student from the '60s able to talk to the women from the '20s because it's such an elegant way to show, like, that you know, even though their their idea of revolutionary politics may seem like it's changed over the decades, on a day to day level, it, it seemingly hasn't.
2: Right, and Ito Noe, um, who you were saying was running this magazine back in the early part of the 20th century. I want to say that she was uh either accused or she actually was a sex worker. And then it feels like Eco, our main character from 69, that she is having sex for money. And it's this way of like really taking that power and saying, listen, I own my own body. I can do with it what I want to, which is pretty radical uh, to say, especially in 1969, when we were just starting to really kick off a worldwide feminist movement.
3: Which is, uh, to me, I think such a great touch that he puts that prostitution and sex work angle in here. And I think it makes the film feel really not
2: dated if you're watching it now. No, between that and then that pathetic guy who is there with the lighter the whole time and trying to light film on safety film on fire. And he just I mean, we all know somebody like this guy, which is unfortunate because he just seems so desperate and wants to say and do things that will get him attention. He's edgy. He's very edgy.
3: Japanese. Edgelord from the nineteen (laughs) sixties.
0: I don't know if we can say Edgelord. I'm glad you said it before I did, because you (laughs) took the words right out of my (laughs) mouth. Yeah, that that character is just again, he's one of the more quote unquote like pathetic male characters of the movie. And it just it shows that like disconnect between the male and female characters in the movie in a way that again I really like and I appreciate. And I don't know if Yoshida Can you, I mean, he's not a feminist director, but this is a very much a feminist forward film.
3: I also really hate this idea of directors or writers or even artists, the visual artists, as being sort of blanket feminist. I think you can have individual works that say something interesting or important about the experience of living in the world as a woman. So you, you could, I feel like it's easier to talk about something as whether or not it's feminist than just say, Oh yes, this director, like, like Catherine Breillat is a good example of this. I feel like she gets lumped in this sort of, Oh, she's a feminist director just because she's a woman
2: who makes films. She's a female director, not a feminist. Yes. Director. and
3: Well, and then it's like, I'll see sort of younger critics watching her films and reacting to them in absolute horror. Like, why are these things happening? I was told she was a feminist. <laughs> and But so with somebody like Yoshida, I feel like who who cares if he's a feminist director? He still made this film in the 60s, which it feels like the sort of thing where if a younger critic was writing about it, they might speculate like, Did a woman help him write it? Just because it feels so, at least to me, it feels so authentic. Like he cares about their personal issues just as much as he cares about telling a biographical story about an actual person or about exploring the sort of failure of revolutionary Marxism in the 60s. Like he just, I think that's what makes this feel so like such a masterpiece. He gets all the angles.
2: Yeah, of the 1969 characters, Iko is our protagonist. She's the most interesting of these characters. And I like that there's even a director character who could be a stand-in for Yoshida, if you wanted to make that case. But he's barely there, and he's making commercials and basically being—he's a whore himself. He's making these commercials. He's not making art films or anything, though he talks with pretension. Not as pretentious as Osugi Kasai, but— He's very pretentious as well, like the the Wada character, like that pathetic guy who's always there with his lighter. And no matter what he does, he can never light her fire, because I know that that fire metaphor is just 100% a sexual thing.
3: I think maybe it's also an intellectual thing, too. You get the sense that these women are striving for something more in their lives, and they attempt to turn to these male partners to fulfill that lack or to help with that growth, and the male partners are just like, yeah, we got nothing.
0: Well, the male characters are very centered on themselves, right? Yes.
3: Yeah, they they think they know how to do everything, and they think they know it all. And I feel like we're talking shit on them, but... They are really well-written characters. Like, you don't flat-out hate them. The in- Like, they're not meant to be super one-dimensional. Like, you understand why the women are drawn to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, he doesn't write these characters as, like, intentionally drawing your ire.
2: They're just really annoying. <laughs> That's just the way it is. I mean, we can't just sit here and say... He's the director, and that's all he does. He's a one-dimensional character. There's a lot more to all of these characters. They feel very fleshed out, rather than just drawing up characters in order for for them to have discussions and arguments about Marxism or whatever, which is to me, a lot of the Godardian type of characters where it's like, Oh, well he is a stand in for this and she's a stand in for that. And they're going to have a discussion about Marxism versus Leninism and who gives a shit. It, that to me is just that intellectual masturbation. Whereas this, it feels like these are real characters that are grounded. I like to that. Even right at the beginning, this whole idea of Iko being our main character—she's the one who's given the voice at the beginning. Yeah, you know, we don't even see her, but she's interrogating the the alleged daughter of uh, Kasai and so we hear her before we see her and she's in this position of power being the one asking the questions where normally it would be a male voice asking questions. But in here she's the investigator. She's the one who gets to ask questions,
3: which I think is so unusual that that's sort of how he, he frames it.
2: I like the initial
0: framing of the film. I thought it was pretty interesting. And I think it's like a really like stark, intro to, like, what you're kind of getting yourself into with this film, right? It's like, all of a sudden, there's a character being interviewed by a modern-day character being put on, almost put on trial? And it kind of works, right? It definitely does. As opposed to just, like, it opening on God knows what, just the characters walking around in 1920s Japan. I mean, that's not, that doesn't have that, like, initial impact of, like, boom, here it is. This is what you're getting yourself into with this
3: film. I don't want to make it sound like I think this is the, I feel like I just keep saying these really overwhelmingly positive things about it, but it just is so like, it's such a thoughtful nuanced take on, as we've been saying, a subject matter that could be very kind of, you know, we're going to have all these one dimensional characters working out these theoretical problems, but instead you're really drawn into the characters and you care about, how they attempt to resolve these problems and the problems are at least by the end of the film the problems feel more personal even though they are still political and that's something that really struck me the first time I watched it because when I watched it I had to read some of uh, Marcuse's Eros in Civilization and that is Basically, like the basic gist of Eros and civilization is that his argument is that we should use our societal advances, advances in technology and medicine and things of that nature, to stop being so chained to this capitalist system that wants to repress us and repress our natural biological desires. So it's basically this sort of utopian take on free love as therefore leading to a freer, happier society. And there's some really great stuff in there. But I think there's also this sort of dangerous utopian angle where it looks at everything in these theoretical terms and leaves out the more complicated issues, the sort of darker side of that. And I think Eros plus massacre is so great at underlining those problems. Like, yes. Okay. You can come out and say, we don't want to own each other. We all want to be independent. We all want to have sexual freedom and freedom to love however many people we want. But that's not what the reality, like the reality isn't this sort of utopia you imagine. And I think the film is so great at showing you how and why that, this idea of free love is not just some sort of magical solution to everyone's problems.
2: Yeah, because the free love that's presented in here, it cannot be unwound from personal relationships. And that's really kind of the undoing of Kasai. Not only you were talking about capitalism, but he puts free love in terms of capitalism and this whole idea of you must be financially independent. And that is something that maybe shouldn't necessarily be on the table. Maybe it should be more of a a collective kind of thing, more of a communist type of thing. But for him, he very much is saying like, you have to have your own means of support. I am not here to support you. And then he, continues to stoke the flames of jealousy by talking about one of the women when he's with one of the other women. And it's just, it's a really, it's a bad scene, man. It's not good. It's so manipulative, but Hey, free love everybody.
3: But I love the scene where the wife basically says, look, I'm the breadwinner in this family. I support him financially. So regardless of the nonsense that he's spewing, He's never going to leave me. He's always going to do what I tell him to do. And so, therefore, I'm the sort of, it's like she's basically saying she's the top of the food chain, while at the same time admitting that he's manipulating her. (laughs) It's just so, it's so fucked up. (laughs) But her speech is great. But she knows it's fucked up, which is the important part. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, if she was completely unaware, it's a different story, which I think it's fun to, to in my mind, think about the fact that, like, it feels like the male character in the scene
3: doesn't realize how stupid he is. Nope. He has no idea. Right. He's the
0: one who thinks he's the manipulator, but he is ultimately not in the position of power, whether or not he wants to admit it. And again, that kind of power shift, the gender power shift is something you don't see. Especially being tackled in, in you know, the era that these films are coming out. And especially not in the society of Japan, where it's a very male-driven society.
3: Definitely, which is why this just blows my mind so much. I mean, even if you think about, like, there's a really great scene where Noe goes to his house. To, so she's the mistress. She goes to his house to break up with him and meets the wife and they basically get into this sort of weird argument where the wife says like, like they don't want to meet each other, but at the same time they do. And the wife has that great conversation with her where she basically says like, you can't break up with him. He needs you (laughs) while, while she hates her guts at the same time, those scenes where all the female characters interact, well, not all of them at once, but like the different scenes where they're sort of split into twos are so dynamic and they have such great chemistry together that I, I really am happy that that's how he chose to structure it. Like to allow the women from the different generations to seemingly travel through time to talk to each other about how their boyfriends are
2: idiots. One thing that I didn't pick up on until watching it with some of the commentary track on from Desser was that, the things that are happening in the past aren't necessarily happening in a linear fashion. They make a point to show Kasai and, and no during the spring when we have the cherry blossoms and we've got that beautiful scene of them talking to one another and the cherry blossoms falling almost like snow. And it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. And then we'll jump in time to other places. And if you're not necessarily like me, not necessarily paying close attention, I didn't realize for the longest time that they are not moving in a linear manner when it comes to the past, that they are jumping around a little bit or there are gaps in time between different things so that they'll talk about, you know, we had this conversation or I sent a letter or whatever. And then they might, backtrack and have something from earlier or have something much later and then go to an earlier thing so we're fortunate that the 1969 stuff I believe is moving in a linear fashion but the 1920 stuff is all over the place
0: yeah I just honestly assume that there is no linear time in this film yeah likewise I think to your point though Mike like it can be confusing but I think also if you just kind of accept the lack of linearity. I think that's honestly the best way to look at it. And just assume that some of these scenes are just taking place, not in a vacuum, but if there, there is, it doesn't seem like there is linearity, especially with the past stuff. But again, when you have past characters walking into the present, how can there be any linearity anyways?
3: I don't know if you guys have heard, but apparently time is a flat circle.
0: I, uh, I, I do think Mike, that that is one of the things that we maybe didn't appreciate the first time we watched this film is the lack of linearity with the timeline. Cause I know we didn't really touch on it in my podcast that we did two years ago.
2: Right. And one of the reasons why I was like, well, let's talk about this movie again is just because I think that we could go back to the well on this. We could even talk about this movie again in two years and we would probably have more stuff that has come up just because this is such a dense text, but it doesn't, feel like it's the densest of texts. There have been other movies where I've tried to watch them, and I'm just like, I'm completely lost. I have no idea what's going on, and maybe I can sit back and enjoy it, and other times maybe I'll get really frustrated. With this movie, I can enjoy it, though I know as I watch it that I need to continue to do more homework to appreciate it.
3: That's what makes a movie a masterpiece, is you don't just show up and let the movie give you everything. Like you have to work to appreciate it and you can watch it at different points of your life and feel totally different ways about it or discover totally new things. And I think that all of that applies to arrows plus massacre for sure.
2: Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a few months ago when we did an episode on Rosemary's Baby, me watching Rosemary's Baby as an 18-year-old is much different than watching Rosemary's Baby as a 47-year-old. There's a lot more that I can see in the movie, having watched it several times throughout the years. Every time I see it, it's a different experience. And that's very much what's happening with this movie is this was a lot different than two years ago, watching it. I feel like it connected with me even more. The work of art is going to stay the same. I'm going to change and I'm going to appreciate it in different ways.
0: And now you can get Mike's uh, self-titled autobiography, Me Watch Rosemary's Baby, (laughs) (laughs) wherever books are sold. I think think you're right, though. I mean, even listening to our podcast – Mike and I would – I mean, I'm not going to self-promote here. I hate doing that. But if you listen to this podcast and you want to hear what Mike and I thought two years ago, it is not drastically different. But it is interesting to hear how far we've come in two years thinking about this film and our discussion on the film. Because this discussion we're having now is vastly different than the one we had last time. And I can't tell – I mean, some of it is having a third person, obviously, which allows for kind of a a better kind of group dynamic – But also, it's just we have matured as film watchers in the last two years. And I think that there needs to be – I don't think people like look at watching film that way as like I'm a more mature film watcher the more films I watch and I can kind of build my repertoire and ideas of what I consider to be good film or things that I look for in film. Or, oh, look, there's that from that film and someone is doing that in this film. But like that really is a thing. That like we as film watchers should be kind of aware of and should internalize when we return to films
2: that we've seen before you start to tie threads that you didn't even know were yes. loose before. Right. I love to, that. Yeah, start to draw little lines from things to things. I mean, in this, the this time reading about the movie, I was just like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Back in 19, you know, 1910, there was an attempted coup that was put down and then in 23, that's when um Kasai was murdered and not only was he murdered but... You know, he they they the government purposefully killed him rather than imprisoned him because they didn't want him to still be around. They didn't want like a Nelson Mandela figure, like he's there rotting in jail, there's still hope. They wanted to destroy all hope and get rid of him and he and Noah and uh, I believe it is a nephew. There's the little boy character in here that uh, was also murdered at the same time. So it's just this like, oh, okay. And then you start to read about what politics was like in the 20s and how things started to shift to the right after this kind of turn to the left. And then that allowed for people like – um uh Toho to come in was it Toho Toei I can't remember I I think I'm I'm saying studios set of actual like people but um it allowed for the whole idea of uh the people that wanted World War II to come into power and then it just like is this whole series of dominoes and then you've got guys like Mishima who are just like oh wow those things that were happening in the early part of the century those are what we need to live up to we need to be this type of thing we need to have bushido back and yada 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 and it's just like like, that's happening at this exact same time. Mishima is writing and making movies, and I think Patriotism comes out in 1970, so it's right at the same time that these movies are being made. So it's, again, this whole confluence of events happening all at this particular time, and it's just fascinating to start to put these pieces together.
0: Well, and let's not forget about the, the one of the things, that the fallout of the incident um that you know the the death the death of the what what you could call i guess you could call him one of the main characters in the film but the the character in the film who dies during the amakusa incident Sakai Asugi and uh, Noe Ito the guy who killed them Masahiko Amak- Amakasu would then go on to become the head of the Manchuko Film Association <laughs> which was the Japanese propaganda arm of film in China. And if you if you read up on that, which is fascinating, but also
3: awful. Oh, yeah, obviously. horrifying. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's just, it's a little bit of coincidental bizarreness that they made a film about Osugi Kasai and everything that happened in his life, and, you know, Noe Ito, and then the guy who actually did it in real life was, you know, head of the Japanese propaganda arm, of the
2: of the film propaganda arm like oh dear god like jesus christ you said that he was the head of the propaganda arm what in china like so the whole manchurian thing
0: yeah so he was the yeah so he was the head of uh manchuko film association which was the japanese propaganda like association in china that was trying to invade china through the use of japanese propaganda
2: which people still talk about like the nanjing incident and what happened in uh in manchuria i mean that is still in china a really sore subject
0: well and this and and let's also not forget uh a the guy who who killed the characters in this film in real life uh, he killed himself during the invasion of manchuria by the soviet forces so of course because of course so there's there's like a lot Like we mentioned before, like Sam mentioned, like, good film challenges you to go out and learn more. And there is a lot of this film, like, there's a lot going on in this film that honestly you need to, like, read ahead of time. I don't think just watching the film without knowing about this stuff is helpful. I think you have to, like, actively go and be a participant in the history about the film and surrounding the film before you go and watch the film. And like, that might seem really daunting for just a everyday film goer, but like, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I don't know. I watched the, like back to the Irishman. I watched the Irishman, but then I went and read the book as well. Is that a lot of time to spend in the world of one person who may or may not have done some of these things? Sure. But at the same time, Like, that was something I wanted to learn more about because the film pushed me in that direction. And that's the thing about Plus Massacre that I think is one of the successes is it really does push you and challenge you as a film watcher to learn more about these things.
3: I feel like that's what makes this type of cinema so exciting to me is it's not just this one experience that is just a repetition of the same thing. Every time you watch it, it's something that is can be so enriching. Like, I'm sure there's someone out there who watched this and thought, what the hell is this? Who are these people? I don't care. I'm bored. But for a film like this, if you're going to go away from it bored, the fault is in you and not the
2: film. Not to be hostile. <laughs> we all read a lot before we do an episode of any podcast or a commentary or what have you. No,
3: I just wing it. <laughs>
2: yeah, I figured that you just winged it and you would go on IMDb and read people's credits, right? Yeah, that's, that's what that's what the people want. You give the people yes. what they want. <laughs> give the people what they want. That's the road to the rondos right there.
0: Just show up, right? That's what you mean? Exactly. Wait, show
3: was- up somewhat on time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm just making sure we're on the same page. Was I supposed to be sober for this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am definitely not high on methamphetamines.
2: Did you just listen to my conversation last night where we were talking about the commentaries for um, Horrors of a Malformed Man? Where one of the commentators is just like, yeah, I've been drinking a lot today. I'm like, oh, shit, really?
0: I mean, that's not something you tell people. Just let them come to the conclusion on their own. Just let them
3: infer. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's like Orson Welles, like, you know, he's drinking in between all of those takes. Like, you you know he's drunk. He doesn't have to tell you he's drunk. This man is clearly drunk. Like, <laughs> we, we get it. Ah, the French champagne. I am genuinely curious how someone could watch this film and be bored, because I don't think that kind of person who would get bored watching this film should ever have stumbled upon this film to begin
2: with. True. Yeah, it's not like you're going to be flipping around on uh, on Netflix and find this. Yeah, this
0: is on this is on AMC one afternoon. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck is this?
3: Once my petition goes through and all sports bars start showing this
2: round the clock, I think th- there might be some people.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, you're probably right.
2: Well, I was going to say there's not an easy answer key for this film. I mean, I had to go to so many different sources to even try to. Figure this thing out. I mean, David Deser is a great, great uh, resource for this with his book, with his scene commentary. Unfortunately, he doesn't do commentary for the entire movie, either the shorter version or the longer version. He just does scene-specific commentary, which is very aggravating. And then there's a few other books that have sections on Aerosmith Massacre, but there's no answer key out there there's no one sheet where you could look at it and be like this person is related to this person and this goes you know there's there's none of that stuff there's no quick answers for this movie unfortunately so i really am hoping one of these days somebody gets on that and says this is the definitive tome written about arrows plus massacre because this movie could have books and books and books written about it but unfortunately it doesn't We're calling
0: you out, David Desser. Do a fucking full... (laughs) Do a full fucking commentary on a three and a half hour movie, bro. Yeah, Mike wants you to do... You know what? You know what? Here's an idea. Let the three of us do the commentary. We could do it. Because I've never gotten to... I've never gotten to do a commentary, but y'all have. And you know what? Three and a half hours? There's no better way to throw your feet into the deep end than to do a three and a half hour movie. I don't want to talk about some bullshit-ass one-and-a-half-hour movie. Let's do a three-and-a-half-hour movie.
3: You're running the gauntlet. That's, that's how you become a real man. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's what my dad told me before he left. He was like, you know, son, I'm never going to come back until you do a three-and-a-half-hour <laughs> commentary on Eros Plus Massacre. And I just looked at him and said, what? And he said, goodbye forever.
2: <laughs> so. I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes. That is really, too, Chris, just so you know, that's where all the money's at. Uh, what? In Commentary? And commentaries, man. First you do the commentaries, then you get the women.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought it was first you get the Patreon, then you get the commentaries, then you get sponsored podcasts by Casper. Those beds are mighty
2: comfortable. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and take a break and play a few words from our sponsors and – when we come back, we will be joined by Professor Dick Steherfans, author of Kiju Yoshidu and ATG, The Reluctant Partner. Hi, I'm William Campbell, the presenter of Challenging Opinions.
1: Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice.
2: Every week, I talk to someone new and put their position to the test.
1: Search Challenging Opinions wherever you find podcasts or go to changingopinions.com. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no or fish to any of these questions love that album is the show for you every month morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail they'll cover the performer the history behind the recording the musicianship common thematic elements between the songs and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com Right up to your face and dish you I have been a surfer since even before I can remember when I hit the water it felt like a giant had grabbed me and slammed me to the bottom never knew it was such a fear. Fear,
0: fear, fear,
1: fear, fear, Surfer,
2: Teen Confronts Fear is a movie of faith, fear, and
0: redemption that has mesmerized audiences around the globe. Now playing at the Film Bar Theater in Phoenix,
2: Arizona. Tickets on sale now at filmbarphx.com. How did you get into Japanese film studies?
4: Well, I have to be quite frank here that I never got so much into Japanese film studies as, as I got into Japanese film very early on because I uh, I volunteered. Uh, so working at a, probably what you call an art house when I think I was maybe 14 or 15. Then like doing projectioning and a bit of programming. In those days, the only Asian cinema that was available was uh, was Japanese film. and actually, like I think maybe like this was seven or eight years ago. I was asked uh, to write a piece on so the the, um, the Japanese so uh, alternative films, independent films that had been shown in in Holland. And then when I really start like tracing this, I also found out so that the number of Japanese films that had been released in in uh, in Holland was, was minimal so it had, just at the time so when I was started out at this this art house um, I think so like probably in nineteen eighteen or nineteen eighty one the um, the then uh, director of the Rotterdam Film Festival had started focusing on Japanese cinema uh, a lot. Uh, I think doing, like, a retrospective on uh, Imamura films. Uh, Then, like, all of a sudden, uh, I think he bought the rights to maybe um, some 20 films or so. So all of a sudden, uh, Japanese film became, well, if only it was, like, maybe 20 films or so, Japanese film became, like, readily available in in Dutch art houses. And so, uh, for me, it made quite... Uh, an impact. Um, uh, so, yeah, there was no uh, Asian or Korean or Taiwanese film out at at the time, and so especially when when doing projectioning, you see one film many times, and uh, you, you go a little bit deeper. And uh, um, yeah, I was was interested, so that uh, the film actually was my gateway to uh, to Japan, uh, but then in a rather Protestant state of mind. Uh, when I continued, so my my academic studies, I decided not not to work on my hobby, but work on something different. So I ended up working on the modern and contemporary uh, Japanese uh, history. Although I so continued uh, working for the uh, uh, Rotterdam Film Festival, and it was only in, in I think 2000 uh, when within the framework of 400 years of uh, Dutch-Japanese uh, relations. I took the opportunity together with a friend to uh, to give an overview here at the uh, University of Leiden, uh, so of Dutch uh, sorry, of Japanese uh, film history. And immediately after that, so uh, I started out a job at a Japanese university, and then uh, continued using that course, and then also started teaching other courses on Japanese films and like in. in due time, I also started to use film as a source for my uh, historical research, actually. So at present, my my main individual research project is on um, a post-war Japanese
2: war film. What kind of movies were you showing back in the early 80s when you were working out as a projectionist? I'm curious what was available to you.
4: There was a bit of Oshima, quite a few titles then of uh, Imamura two or three Mizoguchi. Uh, there was only one Ozu. Uh, of course, there was quite some Kurosawa as well. I think that was pretty much it. Um, I think so. But his Naked Island was out there as well. Onibaba, remember. It's, it's actually, you know, you, you you really wonder what the criterion was that this, this one man, so his name was Sir Hubert Balls, uh, so bought those rights. And actually, at the time, so maybe that was not clear, so the, the Rotterdam Film Festival um, was not merely uh, functioning as a festival, so, but some of the films, and especially so the retrospectives that they presented, they were then so rotating these films through the art house circuit continually. So apart from the festival, there was a, a linked distribution and company to it. What was the first Yoshida film you saw? It probably was one of the the, the later films so either *Eros plus massacre or Kudeta or maybe human promise and then his last film premiered in uh, in Japan there was uh, a lot of focus on uh, on Yoshi- Yoshida at the time so I, I was living in Japan so I was in Japan continuously from two thousand to two thousand seven and then like all of a sudden it was there. So we, we had um magazines like with two hundred pages or more uh, features uh so on Yoshida's work and uh then what is this so Yomota Inuko that Meiji Gakuin was doing his um annual uh, um seminars and then so he, he did one on uh, on Yoshida Kiju which then turned into a book. And I also remember that. So I probably saw uh, Karamino Natachi uh, Women in the Mirror. I remember seeing that for the first time. So the screening where uh, so the director and and the actress were uh, were attending. It was in was in Osaka, not in a regular cinema. So but uh, and yeah, I remember. that so at the time he was also like very active and so trying to be present at his uh, screenings. Uh, and I think probably so so yeah, that made me interested more to, to go back to the uh uh his his older films. Uh and you should also be aware of the fact that, you know, at the time it was not easy to see uh any of his uh, earlier films because they weren't out on D V D. Uh I think so only a few. Eros and um, Kudeta, they would have been out on video. So, but the older stuff just wasn't there. And so you have like the theaters who focus then on on art film or Japanese classics. You name it. And you know Yoshida was definitely not part of it. You know you could see your Naruse series retrospective or Mitsuguchi or don't know what. Uh, So, but Yoshi, that was not there. So, I think it was only from women in the mirror. And, of course, like he had been absent from the the screen for more than 10 years at that stage. Uh, So, it was only from, what is this, 2002 or 2003 onwards that all of a sudden, so there was a lot of attention uh, for him uh, again. And uh, before that, there wasn't a lot. And probably not long afterwards, the DVD uh, collections came out first in Japan and then afterwards in France and then pretty much at the same time, I think, so the retrospectives started. So there there was like all of a sudden there was a continuous focus and the films became available, so both uh, on DVD and in Japan, so in some of the uh, art house cinemas and then uh, in many places uh, in the world. Paris, mm-hmm. London, and also here in Amsterdam. Uh, so retrospect is focusing uh, on him. But before that, it was like really difficult to to see the stuff. You probably had to go to the uh, to the film archives.
2: You said that you met him. I'm curious. When was the first time?
4: I first met him. So passively going to events where he was present. So I assumed that. Uh so the first time probably was in two thousand two-ish or three ish when, when there was the uh screening in, in Osaka. And then I also went to the um uh, uh so the Gakuen uh, seminar. I, I have the book here, so if I look at the book the book came out in two thousand four. So I assume that, that seminar then probably also was out in two thousand three or four. I'm perfectly okay. Not meeting a film director, so I, I tend to meet them uh, through my work at the, the Rotterdam Film uh, Festival. In in essence, I'm okay just with the films themselves. Usually, I do not really feel like this this terrible urge then to uh, also meet the directors and and hear about their uh, deeper. Uh, intention. So um, I think I've turned into uh, then also film scholar. So rather, so in, uh, in a historic way. Uh, So definitely not in, in uh, what you call this Eizogaku kind of uh,
2: approach. You call him Kuji. And I'm curious, because I've only seen Yoshishige. Where does Kuji come from?
4: Uh, I think this is something you should know. So it's not Kuji, it's Kiju. Kiju, sorry. And it's, it's just a, a different reading of the two Chinese characters of his uh, so personal name. Uh, so Yoshishige is is like in a Japanese way and Kiju is in, a, is in a Sino-Japanese way. This is just because of himself that at a certain stage in life, he changed that pronunciation on purpose. And I, I forgot why, not even sure whether there was a very distinct... Uh, reason so, but we see this quite often. Uh, so especially so uh, in the pre-war period, that people are relatively free in pronouncing people's personal names, not the family names, so but the personal names, and this can be so the person him or herself doing this, so but also commentators. Uh, they may take uh, a reading by themselves. Uh, without caring too much what the original may be, and probably in those days there was not even a way to to check it. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, so on the internet, you can can check what it is uh, official uh, in in the birth uh, certificate. Uh, so, but there was a, a relative freedom. So this is rather late in his uh, career. So I would say probably somewhere in the nineteen nineties. Uh, so uh, Yoshida by himself. Uh, so started using uh, kijū, and then also so then in in the books that came out on him uh, from that day onwards. Uh, so he preferred the the kijū reading. So also for my book, uh, mm-hmm. I used kijū instead of Yoshishige.
2: So tell me more about your book. I'm curious what was the motivation to write it and um, how did you go about doing it.
4: So we did the. Um, the retrospective in, in 2010 there was a, a retrospective So there was one in, uh, in Paris before and then so I, I returned to Europe in, in 2007 uh, eightish and was still working uh, every year at the uh, Rotterdam Film Festival where so I was not programmer but um, every once in a while I had a little input in the in the program usually so just like films. Uh, so, but then, yeah, I thought that so, uh, Yoshida's oeuvre was so interesting, both in terms of style, but then also content, and you know, had hardly been presented in the Netherlands or Europe, apart from France, which this Eris Plus Massacre, so at the time... I think there were a few screenings in the Netherlands, So, but any other films, uh, I think, so were not uh, screened. Uh, so nobody had ever uh, seen the films out here. They had not been distributed. I thought it was um, a good idea to, so to have this as uh, part of the Rotterdam Film Festival, and um, that worked. And then because i working at the University of Oslo, I also got some... Um, Scandinavian Film uh, Museum uh, are interested. I pretty much like it. every year I organize uh, a retrospective uh, so related to Japanese uh, cinema and uh, um, so have those screened in in Scandinavian and, and West European uh, Film
2: Museum. Do you prefer the shorter or longer version of Aerospace Massacre?
4: Whoa. <laughs> it's not like you can like watch those you know side by side and i was only able to see the the long one when the uh, when the dvd came out and uh, we actually bought a print of Ares plus massacre uh for Uh, so the Dutch Film Museum, so that was the short one, and um, also in the retrospective so we could only do the short one, and I'm I'm not even sure uh, 100% Mm -hmm. what what the long version is like and whether it, it actually ever has been shown, so apart from the DVD version but frankly though, I love the film, I love the Mood. I love the images, so you know, uh, I would say the longer the better. I have no problem there; it doesn't become uh, more tedious. Yeah. But I think you know, the, you know, the reputation of the film, of course, you know, is is one hundred percent based uh, on the, let's say, the the regular version. So the, the sh- now we may call it the short version. So that means that you know that in, in itself, so is is. Brilliant film, and um, of course, so so I, I watched the longer version, uh, so to check what had been uh, added, or at least, so at least what what had been uh, deleted, but it, it didn't turn it into like a, a different film or an, an, uh, an intrinsically better film. It was just uh, more of brilliant cinema. So that was yeah. Both versions are perfectly fine with me.
2: You know, I didn't even think about it until we started talking. The representation of the Dutch in Japanese film is just a fascinating kind of subset of Japanese films in themselves. And um, I'm curious, uh, how is it to see the Dutch portrayed in Japanese works? I can
4: tell you that I, I, I do not really know many instances of this. So I, I do quite some research. So on the uh, representation of uh, so Japan in in Western uh, cinema, and then also like uh, representation of uh, Asia in uh, Japanese cinema. Uh, so with the representation of Dutch in Japanese cinema, I'm not even sure what is there. Probably in in some war films indonesia or something there'll be a bit like the, the one thing that you know springs to my mind is uh sensei uh by Imamura Shohe, where they use a western actor who's then supposedly dutch and and i remember that there's some remarks by and this is very Imamura like uh by a woman on, on the size of of the genitals of this Dutchman. Uh, but but apart from that, I'm, I'm not really aware of any distinct representation of the Dutch
2: in, in Japanese cinema. The only reason I ask is I want to say that Sleepy Eyes of Death, that uh, series, I want to say that his mother, the character's mother, was raped by a Dutch person, but I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've seen those. And then I remember there was a a movie called "Inflatable Sex Doll of the Wastelands" and that's also called "The Dutch Wives of the Wild."
4: Yeah, 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 Dutch wives. Yeah, yeah, It's, it's. I'm afraid well, uh, that most Dutch people locally are not aware of even. So it's, it's probably something a concept that I used. I don't know, Used that I, that I got
2: to know in, in Japan.
4: No, I do not know this. And even did this this one film that you mentioned. Uh, I do not do not know this. So,
2: okay. I have to look it up. I've been wanting to do a rewatch because there's like 12 films and um, it's been a long time since I've seen them. But if I find it, I'll let you know. I am curious about your current project of the Japanese war films that were made post-war.
4: Maybe it's a bit ironic. Well, not, not so, so I'm an historian, but then, so I, I entered Japanese studies. So, uh, due to my in, interest in film, um, and uh, so I've been working on Yoshida, working on Naruse, Nouvelle Fague and and things. Actually, so yeah, war film is so a genre where so let's say the, the what used to be my hobby interest. So Japanese film, uh, and then my work uh, so modern Japanese history uh, so uh, collide. And I've uh, been living in Japan so for for a long time and then so from two thousand to two thousand seven I was in Kyoto and oh because of this what is this uh, i got Sky perfect and then they pretty much like every Japanese film studio is like broadcasting on a separate channel uh twenty four seven from their back catalog and you know mm-hmm. you can see stuff that at the time uh you couldn't see anywhere else so I was like uh, recording those Japanese films continuously uh, a lot more than than you know I, I could even watch at the time and maybe not even before my death, but, but uh, if you do so continuously and so especially in in July and August, and I did this so for almost seven years, it means that so after some years by uh, recording what they broadcast in July of august July and August uh, that you 'll have uh, a brilliant collection of Japanese uh, war films. Um and then uh, I would say that war film is mainly so a post war uh genre in Japanese uh cinema. Um and um well, you know, this, this may, you know, there the, there is there's been quite so a lot of focus on uh the Japanese war films or they call them propaganda films, kokusaku eiga. So of the wartime Uh, period, so both in Japanese and also then in English Uh, so but then if you look at so war film studies um, so you can find then of course stuff on on Hollywood and on China and on Germany there's even some stuff Mm -hmm. out there in Holland and and Norway Uh, so but despite uh, so the fact that uh, war film uh, so is a very distinct genre uh, in Japanese cinema. There's no research out there on the basis of the collection that I more or less than accidentally I had uh, created by myself. Uh, I thought the only way to to make sure that I ever watched those films also uh, was to turn it uh, into uh, a research product. Uh, so, But I'm not just like uh, working on those films because I happen to have that collection. Uh, it's also because I, I'm, I'm interested in uh, war memory. And um, as you may know, so in Japan, so war memory is, is uh, dealt with in a rather different way than it's been dealt with in most countries. So whereas in most countries, I think the States or the media, Or education so dictates one interpretation of the Second World War as the correct one. And so you pretty much are supposed to know when the war started and when it ended and who fought whom and why it was fought and whom were the goodies and whom the baddies. Um, so this is not the case in Japan. In Japan, so we have three quite distinct, uh, so different interpretations of uh, the Second World War, uh, when it started, whom fought whom, uh, whether the Japanese were good or bad. And that's so, it is a question, so that's never been dealt with, uh, consensus has never been created. Um, so we see this, um, what shall I say, this, this, and so the, this competition between uh, these three uh, so sort of different interpretations uh, very much played out uh, in Japanese cinema, uh, of course, like in the post-war period, late 1940s and also 1950s, but so also still into uh, the 1960s. Um, Japanese well cinema in itself so is is the most popular medium. Uh, of popular culture, uh, so if you want to influence uh, popular ideas on the war, uh, so cinema uh, so is one of the most, or maybe even so, the most important uh, way to do so. So you see the the war between uh, these various uh, interpretations so being conducted on on the silver screen. So that's also a reason why I want to focus on this, and because nobody has done before. I'm um, doing it in a very basic way, uh, just finding all the stuff that's out there, watching it, uh, then categorizing it, or uh, creating, uh, what should I say, uh, categories and subcategories, uh, and then uh, just uh, analyzing uh, continuity, discontinuity, and then like depiction of certain things and finding tropes. Uh, so yeah, it's a very, very basic research. Uh, which, like, uh, so for uh, war film, po- even even so, post-war war films of most countries has already been done. Uh, so the case of Japan
2: it's not. So that's why I'm still doing it. Ultimately, is that going to be for a class, or for a book, or for a longer article? What's your uh, end game with that?
4: that? That should turn into a book. So I, I already published a few articles and have been doing uh, quite a few presentations on this. Uh, but like. The problem is that you never have one project. Uh, I think I have five projects going on, and uh, usually the, the collective projects are the most pressing because you know you can't let other, other people down. So I first have to get those out of the way, and then I uh, then I hope to uh, to uh, do the rest of the viewing. So I, I did like the, the earlier period, so that the late forties, fifties, uh, and then I looked at, at one. A studio in particular got that published, and then I'm also like, well, because you know you 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 can see the new stuff in the cinemas, uh, so I'm also done a lot of work on that. So, but I still need to do uh, quite a lot of viewing for for the uh, 60s and and
2: 70s. I am very curious how the Japanese new wave stuff will differ from the more mainstream interpretations of the war. I'm thinking of things like the Catch or what is it, Human Bullet? I want to yeah, say. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, brilliant films, brilliant films. Um, well, you know, and actually, so Human Bullet is is like a, a very interesting example. There, you you cannot make a war film within the Japanese setting in a neutral way. You know, just the mere words that you will use to name that war in itself will already tell in which camp you are. And then so because there is no consensus yet, and I'm not sure whether there'll ever be, on what that war was, when dealing with that war, when portraying that war, you have to make certain decisions very consciously because people are aware of the fact that this wartime issue has not been settled and that there's different views out there you know, you cannot just make you know sometimes you say that, you know, that, that you know, they're just making a war film for the money because you know war films they make for nice action and stuff like that but, but you know it's it's never like that so already on the basis of so the, the analyses that I've done up till now. Uh, so you can see that there's like huge continuity in, in certain genres of what they show, what they will not show, uh, crucial kind of scenes that they'll use when they want to make an anti-war film or the crucial kind of scenes that they will have uh, when they make a war film that goes against Anti-war films, when you work for uh, a commercial uh, studio, um, it depends a bit so on, on, on the time frame. Uh, anti-war films could be like commercial blockbusters in the 1950s, maybe also so still in the nineteen. 19- early 1960s so this has changed completely now if you nowadays make an anti-war film you're going to be in the art houses and you're not going to be in the major cinema so that so that has completely changed but the interesting thing so for instance so for human bullet is that so this director uh, used to make a lot of uh, war films the same guy who made what is this the desperado Desperado, uh, outpost the series he's a tall hall director and he, so, made only one film within the ATG framework. And it's a war film, so it's Human Bullet. And, yeah, it, it gives you uh, such different few interpretation of that war. Uh, so from the war films that that same director, so, made for, for, for toho Hall. Um, so this really tells you that so, yeah, the, the freedom that people were given uh, so within the uh, ATG framework, uh, made that then also in the war film genre, they could make a film with the message that they really wanted to, to tell.
2: It sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read the book.
4: If I, if I don't die too early on, it will, it, will, it, will, it will be there. It's definitely in there so, in another few years.
2: Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real pleasure talking with you.
4: Okay, you're most welcome.
0: This is definitely uh having listened to our podcast we did 2 years ago, Mike. This is definitely a lot more of an animated conversation
2: <laughs> than last time. Yeah, we shouldn't necessarily have to talk linearly about it.
0: I think we'd be remiss if we did talk didn't talk linearly, right? Like wasn't that the point? Like the movie's not linear anyways.
3: We would be getting angry letters in the mail from Yoshida-san.
0: I think we'd be disappointing if we didn't film a video one where Mike is in the shower and our hands are just all over him. I was under the impression that would be more disappointing.
3: Can I hang myself with some film reel?
0: Sure. (laughs) Before this happens so you don't have
3: to. No, no. It, It has to be at the end, much like in the movie. It'll just be Mike
0: showering and then hands, and then Sam just kills herself. I'm just standing in the corner like, what the fuck is happening? I'll just start complaining about my wife making all the money, but me having all the rules in our house.
3: Right.
2: (laughs) Just three simple rules. That's all. Yeah, exactly. Just three.
3: Everyone has to be financially independent except for me. And I will pay attention to you all equally, except that I won't.
2: We all know that you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, Sam. Come on.
3: (laughs) <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> Chris doesn't even know that story.
2: <laughs> no, people think that uh, that Sam's some sort of trust fund baby, even though it's as far from the truth work, as you can possibly get. <laughs> I
3: work two jobs, like I basically work two full time jobs. <laughs> so I don't Sounds know. Sounds like a trust fund baby to me. It, it right? does. Are you just waiting for your parents to die so you can get the money? I'm trying to be enough of a trophy wife to really snag. Uh, some guy with eyebrows and Marxist politics, and I mean, the, the actors' eyebrows in this movie are so dramatic. I I know that there <laughs> there's no makeup on them, but a little cartoon character-ish.
2: In that cool like wispy beard that he's got going on there.
3: Yep,
0: that is not something white people can pull off. Trust me, I went to Japan on my honeymoon and tried to have a wispy mustache, and I looked like a sex pervert.
3: Yeah, only more j- only than only John Waters. <laughs>
0: I don't know why this picture's been coming up more and more, but I've shown this picture to people like five times in the last week because we were talking about facial hair, and it's was like, I look like a pervert. They're like, no, you look like a Japanese guy, but not Japanese. Like, (laughs) shut up. Like, that's not, no! Like, that, that defeats the purpose, you assholes.
2: So did you guys watch the shorter version or the longer version or both? I watched the long version.
3: So I've seen the long version in the past, so this time I watched the short version. Because yeah, when we watched
0: it, Mike, I think I watched the short version. So this time I was like, you know, let's watch the long version. And plus, two years ago, the Arrow thing wasn't out. So now the long version is easier to find. Because I remember there was this huge point of contention when we did the podcast the first time about how hard it was to find the original version or the extended version. So I was like, fuck it. Might as well watch the long version this
2: time. I actually ended up watching both. And then doing the scene commentary by Desser. And I think I appreciate the movie a lot more, having heard his commentaries on it and having seen the short version. And I tend to agree with him that the shorter version actually feels more avant-garde than the longer version because they are... They, they eliminate a lot of the stuff from the, uh, the, the, the 20s, and so when they make those switches, it's a little bit more dramatic, and it, it has more impact that way, I think.
3: Yeah, but what a fucking
0: schmuck. You didn't do the entire movie?
3: Okay, so this really aggravates me because <laughs> – and I know that this is such like a nitpicky career thing that no one else on the planet cares about, but – Like, when I get hired to do commentaries, lately I've been doing longer films, like two and a half, three hours, which is a really long time. It's a lot of notes to prepare, and I love doing it, so I'm not, like, complaining about the fact that I'm getting hired to work on things I love. What annoys me is that I feel like there are certain academics who get hired by, like... Criterion and and places like that who don't do full commentaries and they just do these limited scene commentaries, it's like I know you could talk about this for three hours. Like, why not just do a whole damn commentary? Like, especially this movie. Just do a whole commentary. I agree. Sorry, my rant is over.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, honest to God, I mean, this is something I've always joked with Mike about, like, I have never been asked to do a commentary on a film yet. Fingers crossed. But, um... Yeah, like, I can't... It, it's like, what? You can't be bothered to get out of your fucking office at Wayne State University or God knows where the fuck you teach and give a shit for three and a half hours? Like, get the fuck out of here. I mean, I know David Desser is the voice of Eros Plus Massacre at this oh, point yeah. in 2020. But, like, dude, if this is the if this is the film that you champion so hard, why haven't you done a full
3: commentary? Like, really, why haven't you? I think it might be because academics don't necessarily think of themselves as being part of the film critic industry. And so they're sort of like what they're used to being hired for is not always commentaries. So I think it might just be, okay, I'll, I'll do, I'll give you like a short lecture. So that that's my guess is because it's, it's only ever, like directors and more more like recognized academics who do these limited scene commentaries i mean you definitely have other film critics who shall not be named who are hired to do full commentaries and are paid for full commentaries but will sometimes just stop talking
0: who you throw in shade at now i gotta know uh have you mentioned him before mike i feel like oh yeah yes i have maybe once or twice (laughs) Well, I don't Maybe know. I mean, like, twice. Mike Mike and I talk fairly regularly, and we talk about all kinds of stuff, but I feel like we've talked about the commentary thing, and this one guy, but I don't... It was in reference to something specific. Is he the creepy guy?
3: He's, He's one of them. Okay,
0: yeah. The creepy guy who, like, talks about movie scenes really weird, like, perverted. Not, like, pervertedly, but, like, oh. in a way that, like, you shouldn't talk about it this no, way no, in that's, front of other people. That's-
2: so Desser does scene-by-scene commentary for both the theatrical and the long version of it the what he calls the director's cut and i think you could actually take those two commentaries and cut them together and you get closer to a full movie sure but unfortunately that's not the way that they did it like it's just scene by scene on the the theatrical version and then when it comes to the long version the director's cut i think it's just on the scenes where they have cut things out because he'll Say, like, well, in the shorter version, there's this whole scene is gone. And then he'll talk about the scene that was removed. And then, you know, you flip to another scene and he'll do the exact same thing. Okay, well, this isn't in the shorter version, but, and he'll talk about it some more. And I'm like, okay, just take all that stuff and string it together. I want as close to three and a half hours as possible. Or just do a fresh one.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I get it. Like, he's removed himself from what we do as like what y'all we, I've never done it, but like what y'all do is like a full commentary from start to finish. Like he's removed himself from that. But if someone is asking you and they consider you an expert, you give a shit, dude.
3: Uh, If you guys can podcast on the movie twice in two years, he can do a full commentary. Holy shit. Are we experts now? (laughs) Are we experts?
0: Oh my God. I don't think so. But you know, if, 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 uh, yeah, but know. how
3: many people actually podcast about Eros Plus Massacre? Not a lot. I watched. I watched one YouTube video
0: about the movie, and they actually did a really good job talking about it. Uh, Cinema Nippon. They did a really good job talking about it, and like they introduced some stuff that, like, even the the supplemental stuff you sent along, Mike, kind of touched on. So, yeah, nobody, <laughs> like, no one. Now we've done it twice. Maybe we'll make it like a yearly thing, like every two years.
2: Same time two years from now. All right, I'll I'll be here. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: En venant
1: ici, une voiture a essayé de m'écraser. Ils ont appris que j'avais des révélations importantes à vous faire. Et tu t'es cogné contre le trottoir. J'ai la preuve de l'assassinat du député. L'accident. You, you the have been bien sur les bras cet assassinat. Vous vous égarer, mon ami. Pourquoi les idées que nous défendons
2: provoquent-elles une telle violence c'est une tentative d'assassinat. J'étais à la manifestation, j'ai tout vu. J'ai même des photos.
1: Il paraît qu'on veut assassiner le docteur. Et alors C'est pas la première fois, non De toute façon, chacun de nous a pris ses risques. Et c'est tout à fait par hasard, bien sûr, que vous vous trouviez sur les lieux de l'assassinat. Vous avez dit assassinat
2: that's right our exploration of 1969 continues with a look at costa garvis's z until then i want to thank this week's co-host sam and chris so chris what do you have going on in your world in my world of the culture cast
0: We're talking about a film director that everybody knows, Mr. Steven Spielberg. But we're not talking about Jurassic Park and E.T. Because honest to God, like, what can we say about it that no one else has already said? Like, E.T. is mediocre. Jaws is really good. Okay. Um, We're talking about Steven Spielberg's quote-unquote B-sides. So we started the month out with Duel. We talked – we talked – Uh, A little bit about 1941. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, Mike, you're on one of the podcasts for the month, actually, as well. Talking about Always.
2: I am kind of excited because I've never actually seen that movie.
0: I have not either. I have not seen any. I have seen 1941, but everything else I had never seen before. So I'm actually really excited to talk about some Spielberg films that people... I mean, look, with a a director like Steven Spielberg, everybody knows the good movies. um, And everybody knows the bad movies. And apparently opinions have changed on Hook. It's still bad, guys. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) Rufio (laughs) forever. That's an awful movie. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Are people fucking high all of a sudden? It's like Phantom Menace is good, too. Like, oh. Okay, those people are insane. Uh Yes, they are. We should do a Phantom Menace podcast at some point so we can address the insanity of, of those people. But um there's a lot of Spielberg movies that people kind of maybe forgot or got have gotten overlooked. And I think it's important to talk about a director's kind of B-sides because with, with something like Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones or stuff like that, the, the good stuff always gets talked about and the other stuff just kind of gets lost by the wayside. And so that's what we're doing. And Mike, you and I have started our podcast.
2: Our new podcast. Our brand new podcast, which is replacing the Kolchak tapes, which is the Barney Miller podcast. Much
0: to the sadness of everyone on the Kolchak website.
2: Oh, yeah. Like all two people? (laughs) Yeah,
0: five of them.
2: (laughs) But like you said, the Barney Miller podcast, uh, that's uh, coming soon. And Sam, how is the busiest woman in Philadelphia? This part
3: is always a struggle because I can never remember what I've worked on that's been announced. So I feel like one of these days, I'm just going to say something that I'm not supposed to
2: talk about yet. So I'll keep it short. Uh, well, you can talk about Max and the Junkman or yes. Some of the other French films that you've done commentaries for.
3: Sure. I've uh, worked on a lot of French and German cinema recently. I have commentaries on upcoming releases of Serge Gainsbourg's Je moi non plus. Uh, Line of Demarcation, which is a Chabral film, Max and the Junkmen, which I know you love. Um, And speaking of unexpectedly feminist Asian movies, I have a commentary on the upcoming 88 films release of Come Drink With Me, the sort of wonderful seminal Kung Fu movie. Uh, And I'm also currently working on a book about uh, Polanski's The Tenant, which hopefully will be out later this year.
2: You know, I can watch Polanski films up until the time that he was accused of his crimes, and then I had to stop watching. Can I ask why? No, I'm actually making fun of people that oh, are Oh, like I was that. like, what? <laughs> yeah, did you think I'm one of those people? No. Th- that's no. why
3: I was like, what, did you have a t- seizure? Or did something
2: happen? <laughs> I just can't abide the, his criminal antics.
3: I feel like... I love The Tenant. It's one of my favorite movies. It falls under the umbrella of what I was talking about earlier, about movies that expect you to work to appreciate them and where you can keep watching it and keep discovering new things. But I also feel like me putting out a book on any Polanski film is going to be a little bit of a field day, but... You know, I can get kind of aggro on the internet, so I'm prepared to defend my decision. Wait, did Polanski do something wrong? No, no, you're confusing him with Woody Allen. (laughs) Oh, I thought we were talking about Harold
0: Weinstein's. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the guy who has to walk with a cane now? Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that guy. (laughs) Wait, but did Polanski do... Was Polanski the one who raped kids, or is that just another person in Hollywood who raped kids?
3: No, that was Polanski. Was that Brian Singer? Yes. Also, all all, D, all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) How many of these people are you going to bring up, Chris? And would you shut the fuck (laughs) up? I'm not writing a book about Brian Singer or any Brian Singer films, though.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth. Take over the world.
3: Loaded in the sea, loaded on the mountain. The lilacal and anything. high the mountain, deep but than the sea, floated on the ocean. And I get it so much? High and high,
1: see the cloud, people and like you. See the rain people and shadows. Got, got loaded in the tanger.
3: Come and shy get me. Little like a load. I was loaded up on the top of a Listen, girl, I need it, but not too much. I take it. I feel like I'm flying high and high. See the clouds, clouds. people and yellow. Oh. See the rain, oh. purple and shadow. Got loaded in the tangy.
1: Got my tank, got my... Got
3: In the sea, loaded on the mountain. Could I lay cold and think? High the mountain, deep out the sea. Boat it on the ocean. Can I get it so much? High and high. See the cloud,
1: people and hills. See the rain,
3: purple and shadow.
1: get men get men see the cloud down and yeah. yellow see yeah. the, the rain yeah. and blackland shadow yeah. got good hands get men got my hands get men let me know, let me See See, see yeah. oh. Yeah. Got my channel. Get yeah. Got my, got, got, my yeah. got, got a got channel.